taken from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. And this could be found on page 1132 in the Bibles, in your chairs. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. O God, Amen. amen. Anne Frank inverted Cicero's common cultural idiom, where there is life, there is hope, when she said, where there is hope, there is life fills us with fresh courage and makes us strong again. It seems to be highly significant that a young Jewish woman who is facing the horrors of life's destruction should overturn the definition of hope offered by a comfortable first-century Roman statesman. And sometimes I find that when the trappings of our comfortable lives are stripped away, we do see how enduring hope really is. I've come tonight to give you some hope And it's hard to offer hope where there's been an experience of hopelessness. I hope my words don't seem pat or immature or shallow to you. I want to express to you again my deep and heartfelt sympathies for the loss of Julieta and Sarah. Life, I want to say tonight, is not the source of hope. Hope is in fact the source of life. But it is not dependent upon life. If we look at our passage in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we see, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, I'm, I always find it remarkable as a Protestant how we've worked so hard to uh, f- feather ourselves away from the reality that it's God's work over us in salvation, not our work, over him in salvation. That he is preeminent in salvation, that hope it, it finds its origins in him and not in us. We work very hard to be pleasing to God when God has made us pleasing to him by sending his son. Notice, whilst we were still sinners, before we could do anything of ourselves, he made a way of hope for us. Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan and chose a particular road. This road we know between Jerusalem and Jericho, and it was a famous road. It was called the Way of Blood. 
wasn't a very appealing road. Uh, you can imagine travellers not really wanting to go down that particular road, but there was no other way. The sand was stained with blood. It was a terrifying road that everyone was aware of. And Jesus told that story because he was pointing out that he would become, he would take, if you like, the way of blood for our sakes in order that we might find a way of life. We are all on this way of blood, friends, this painful human life, this life filled with uh, difficult and uncomfortable and depressing experiences. And yet Jesus walked this very same road, this way of blood, and he took the way of blood to the cross in order that we might know what the way of life really looks like. Life, then, is not the source of hope. Hope is the source of life. In Romans 5, verse 5, Paul says, Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. In all honesty, as someone who has an anxiety disorder, I find this verse relatively difficult. I find myself perpetually disappointed by the hope uh, that God has placed in me. Uh, maybe it's somehow diminished me in your sight that I acknowledge that. Maybe I disqualify myself uh, in your eyes by acknowledging that I find myself sometimes disappointed by that hope, asking God those questions. God, is this what hope looks like? This difficult life, this perpetual disappointment this challenge, this discouragement, this bereavement, this loss. But today, I remind myself as I remind you that we hold on to this hope, a hope that's not defined by circumstances, a hope that's not even defined by the presence of life itself, one that goes well beyond life into the realms of death. I was noticing in worship, I hope I'm not wrong, in the beautiful relief in the sanctuary, Jesus, I think, lifting Jairus' daughter on the right-hand table. Just a picture there that Jesus embodying hope, reaching into death. And those who uh, were with Jesus at the house that day scoffed do you remember they laughed or they, they spoke cynically? Do not bother the teacher, they said. Don't bother the teacher. It's too late. And Jesus ushered them away and then he took the disciples and he went into that room and then he took that little girl's hand and he said, Tabatha, come, which means little girl, arise, wake up. And the little girl got up and she took some food. Something special, though, something difficult, I think, when someone takes their own life, when it appears that someone's made an objective choice against life, and they steal away more than their presence from us. In a sense, they actively challenge our human optimism that things can always get better or be resolved. Suicide is a challenge to hope, but it doesn't have victory over hope. Some people are quite uncomfortable when I use, just use the word. It's hard, isn't it? 
Maybe you feel a little uncomfortable tonight, wondering where I might go with this, but I want to speak it out. Because sometimes in life there's a sore poison that needs to be allowed, exposed, needs to be revealed, needs to be made safe in order that we can stand to and acknowledge what's really going on, what's really happening. I thought maybe it would be helpful to sort of undo some of the common outlooks that uh, can make it even more toxic. One shame-based belief or myth about suicide is that only weak people consider it to be a way out. I've done a lot of work with people with emotional health problems and depression. Many of them filled with emotional distress. Suicide isn't for weak people. In fact, it can be misguided, yes, but weakness it's not. It's a lie. You see, the biblical record demonstrates suicidal ideation in the ultimate strong people. It's not the preserver people who always make it a reality, but it's common in Scripture even. Moses strikes you as odd, maybe. The hero of the people of Israel in Numbers eleven fourteen, he laments the depth of his hopelessness in the face of the demands of the people of Israel. He says, the burden is too heavy for me. In verse 15 we read, if this is how you're going to treat me, Please go ahead and kill me now. The ultimate biblical strongman. Paul also contemplates whether it's better to live or die in Philippians 1, 20 to 26. He's hard-pressed to decide between the two. He says, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. There are many strong and successful people, full of faith in Christ, who struggle with suicidal thoughts and ideas. It's time, I think, that we stopped propagating the myth that suicide is a disease for weak people and instead acknowledge that, as Jess Lucas says, there are just no strong people. There are just no strong people. I think the other unhelpful outlook, if you like, with suicide is what I call the comparison myth. Suicide, uh, emotional distress can prey on the comparison myth that in the light of your success, I've become a failure. Since I've been working in London, which is now quite a significant amount of time, I'm struck by this particularly in our rather successful churches here in the centre. The increase in male suicide in the UK correlates with harder cultural definitions of what success and failure are. It's also noteworthy that the highest risk season, midlife, is also the time at which cultural position can be most easily measured. And people in distress looking around them saying, well, so-and-so's doing so well and I'm doing so poorly. So-and-so's got such great opportunities and I've had so little. So-and-so's earning so much and I'm earning such a lot less. Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings 19.4 suggests the comparison myth is a, a fuel for his own suicidal ideas. He says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life for I'm no better than my ancestors. 
hope I'm not distorting your reading of the scriptures here by pointing out Moses and Paul and Elijah all sort of sharing in these ways. I just think it's important, it's helpful that we, we kind of get away from the idea that there are, if you like, these strong people who don't have these kind of feelings and acknowledge actually that they're far more common than we might like to admit. The gospel has the power to release us from the comparison myth. It's one of the reasons I recognize its healing power for those in emotional distress. N.T. Niles famously said, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And in the light of the kingdom, hope is found in God alone. Uh, our, our wealth and our worth is found in him. We can be released from the comparison myth because we rejoice, verse 2, in the hope of the glory of God, a glory that comes not from ourselves, nor from our achievements, nor from our net worth, but it's invested in us by a God who knows us and loves us, a God who created us before time even began. Not only so, verse 3, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm struck by that. I'm, I, I'm struggling with that. That actually God's done it, and then somehow through this wrestling, through this challenge, there is new fruit. Working with people in emotional distress is not often the time that you point out. It's certainly not a good pastoral practice to say, oh, don't worry, friend. You know, this is a tough time, but God will bearing good fruit through this. It's all for your character. The important thing is to notice that, that the challenge is not God's way of producing character, but that character is God's redemption of the struggle of life. Sometimes we can't see any fruit for a long season. Sometimes we can't see any fruit for a lifetime. But that doesn't mean that there will not be fruit. It's important is that we, if you like, get away from our, our victorious mythology that the victory of God looks like prosperity now rather than acknowledging that the victory of God was won on the cross for our sakes and we fully realized in heaven when we meet with him. If we buy into a very Western, very wealthy outlook that the triumph of God is an easy life on earth, is financial prosperity, it's ascension in the workplace, we're sure to disconnect from the reality of our hardships. And when they come, we find no reference for them. I know of no grief more powerful than that elicited by, elicited by suicide. One of my friends uh, who's lost his father to suicide said, as Christians, we love to pretend and give the illusion that everything is okay and that having true faith will mean that nothing can impact us. But let's be real, life can be messy at times. And a church that embraces changing lives and circumstances is a place people will want to go. I just want to encourage you. I, I, I always find it such a privilege to be talking about these topics. My wife sort of sends me off uh, with a pat on the back and says, I hope you'll be all right. I hope they'll be all right. But it's a great privilege to be with you. It's a great privilege to, to be dining with you afterwards. And I want to thank those who've had the imagination and the courage to say yes we should do this because actually this is okay this is a safe place to be together i heard in the notices difficult news an uncomfortable season the loss of dear friends 
But God created the church for this. This is hope. God didn't need the church to do his work. He chose the church to do his work. This was the place impregnated for hope in a broken and hurting world that we might be together. This is not the time to leave the church and go, church is quite a hard place to be right now. This is the place to gather in church and say this is the place of hope where this message is embodied. Redemption often can't be seen in the one who's being redeemed, but only in the others who stand with and watch, who work tenderly to encourage and support. And so we see perseverance and character formed and hope released. I wanted to say something about confusion around the nature of suicide to encourage you all. Until 1961, suicide was a criminal act in the UK. And it sounds like a very strong thing to say, but I think it's important to point it out. Because there were painful assumptions about what suicide meant. It's assumptions around the nature of suicide itself that I think continue to spiritually stigmatize the issue and their causal factors. But I wanted to tell you that I don't think there are any theological credits to the idea that, if you like, suicide is an unforgivable act. To suggest that a Christian who decides for suicide is, is not forgiven is to deny the sufficiency of Christ himself in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Because there's no sin that cannot be absolved by his blood. And that's before we even consider whether or not a suicidal person can ever make an objective decision to take their own lives. And I would strongly argue, every circumstances that I've worked, that a suicidal person is not an objective person. They're a person who is unwell. More than that, the rationale that people who die by suicide are unforgiven because they're unable to repent and confess applies to all unconfessed sin in the Christian life. Imagine it. That would mean that anyone whose last living act was not confession would not be forgiven. The elder who was using his mobile phone before causing a fatal crash or the businesswoman who lied about the figures before having a heart attack in the lift or the child who was so angry about his suffering that he, he swore at God before his surgery that went wrong. There's no sense to it. There's no credit to it that actually God knows us, that he loves us. In relationship with him, we can be assured of his forgiveness. I want you to know that that is true for your dear friends, that they were known by God, that they had relationship with him, that hope was theirs, that their illness didn't disqualify them from his favor. Christians get stirred up, I think, by all sorts of justice issues, and rightly so, from homelessness and trafficking to debt and adoption. Yet it seems that we have little to say about an issue that kills a person every 40 seconds in the UK. It's remarkable, isn't it? Suicide is not the choice of weak or selfish people. It's an act of desperation in people who are unwell and need our assertive love and our assertive intervention. In Acts 16.27, the Philippian, the Philippian uh, jailer drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. you remember that moment, I'm sure. Paul did not say to him, it's your choice, you selfish man. Instead, he said, do not harm yourself because we are all here. Do not harm yourself because we are all here. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about talking about these sort of issues in the life of the church is 
is that I want to be like Paul. Not that I personally have some grandiose dream about being like Paul, but, but I want to be like Paul in that circumstance to say to people, do not harm yourself. We are all here. We're all here with you. We're all here together as a church, as a family. Don't harm yourself because we are all here together. I think if we're to start impacting suicide rates in the UK and if we're to help those who are left behind in the aftermath, we need to start saying that. We are all here. Being present with those who are experiencing suicidal feelings and extreme emotional distress means creating an emotionally honest culture and putting mental health on the agenda. Being more open, though, about emotional health doesn't mean that you become automatically equipped to deal with these things. And that's why it's helpful sometimes to get some expert opinion from outside the church to work uh, together in order that we can offer the right sort of support. But I also want to tell you that talking about suicide doesn't make it more lightly. Sometimes in the church we have this terrible idea that if you talk about something, it's likely to happen. We start talking about emotional distress, everyone's going to get emotionally distressed suddenly. If we start talking about suicide, other people might you know, take the lead and use that example to motivate themselves. It's actually not true. When we talk about the difficult things, when we talk about the things that make us deeply uncomfortable, when we talk about things where we think, goodness, if I start talking about that, might I say the wrong thing and upset a family member or a friend of the person who's died? When we choose to pull back from talking about the things, the difficult things of life, then often they become more likely, not less likely. Jesus has given us the opportunity to talk about things. He's invited us to share with one another, to console one another, or to comfort one another with the comfort we ourselves have received. Through my pastoral ministry, I know of no grief more powerful than that elicited by suicide. One of my friends recounted, I recall sitting at my elderly mother's feet in her care home, telling her that her eldest child had taken his own life. I've never heard such an anguished cry come out of anyone's mouth. Recovery together from the grief of losing a loved one through suicide does take years. And I want to encourage you all to this too. I'm passionate about bereavement. Again, it seems like a strange thing to say. But think about it. Don't we often give people six weeks and then start patting them on the back and saying it's time to move on? Then we find ourselves trying to avoid using the name of the person that they've loved and lost in case we stir up difficult feelings. When actually Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the brilliant Swiss-American psychologist who wrote The Cycle of Death and Dying, says bereavement itself is an 18-month journey in its minimum form. It takes five years for many people, and it's a lifelong transformation for most. Why do we give up with the difficult things so early? Why do we avoid making the mistakes that would make us more honest and real to one another. On the first anniversary of Andrew Warren's suicide, the son of US pastors Rick and Kay Warren, Kay posted on her Facebook page, please don't ever tell someone to be grateful for what they have until they've had the chance to mourn what they've lost. It will take longer than you think is reasonable, rational or right, but that's okay. Kay referenced what she saw was the subtle encouragement to move on and get back to normal from other Christians. And she responded, I have to tell you, the old Rick and Kay are gone. They're never coming back. We will never be the same again. The post received five 
oh sorry, 50,000 likes and 11,000 comments, mainly from people who wanted to remember someone that they'd lost. Healthy church together mourns with those who've mourned Romans 12 verse 15, however long it takes. I know that Tim and Charles have been incredibly sensitive and supportive to those who have lost in this church. I know they'll continue to do that, but I want to encourage you all to be afraid, to be uncomfortable to address these difficult issues, not to keep on talking. And if you're struggling with emotional distress yourself, not to feel shame. One of the things I I think is quite amusing, looking at it in sort of an odd way, is that Jesus is this perfect emotional spectrum. In psychological terms, we talk about the yellow and the purple emotions. The yellow ones are the sort of bright and breezy ones, the sort of joy and love, hope. And then you've got the blue ones, which are the anger, you know, and the distress, sadness. Jesus exhibits all of them. Jesus wept. Jesus sweating drops of blood. You're going to get more distressed than that. Jesus is filled with joy, and he's filled with sadness. Remember Lazarus, his friend who he lost. Jesus is this complete emotional picture, and that sometimes we can think that church is the place where you express your yellow emotions, but you leave your purple ones at home. We come to the door, and you put on your perma-smile, and you smile your way through songs of victory and hope, and then you leave, and you can leave it at the door, and then you can go back home and be depressed again. Isn't it a shame? It's not shame. It's a shame, because God says there's no shame in those purple emotions. He's He's given them you too, too. Not, they're not sins. They help you to acknowledge what happened in the fall. They help you to give a voice to those things that are uncomfortable and difficult. They're useful. They're things that can heal. Denying them doesn't help you. Actually allowing them, that's precious. And isn't it so wonderful and encouraging and authentic in the church when someone says to you, would you pray for me? I'm feeling ever so sad. Don't you, as the prayer, feel so richly encouraged that someone would have that boldness, that intimacy with you, that they would share their personal feelings, those purple ones that they might hide? It's a rich blessing being in pastoral ministry, but it's not to preserve as specialists or experts. It's our shared responsibility. I want to tell you that emotions are neither good nor bad. They simply are. Feeling depressed or despairing or even suicidal is not an act of willful disobedience against God or the teachings of the church. So, Edgar Allan Poe said, even in the grave all is not lost. Where is the hope in this? Even in the grave all is not lost. All is not lost. Because the hope in this text, the non-disappointing hope, is the preserve of God himself. It's verse 6 for me. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. I don't like to admit it very often, but I find it admits me. I try and deny it a lot, but it becomes my reality. But actually, I am powerless. I am powerless. I wake up in the morning, and my prayer for the day, I'm, I'm 
struggle with prayer sometimes to really get going in the morning. But my prayers always begin with, Lord, let me fear you today and not man. Whatever you will me to do. It's that place of powerlessness. Saying, God, you are God and I am me. I'm powerless in myself. I love the final song we sang, you know, that actually, if it's my sufficiency, I'm lost. But if it's God's all-surpassing sufficiency, then I'm found. Whilst I was still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. In all this, it's easy to feign our powerfulness, isn't it? And say, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That's what life looks like. That's what the friends of Job seem to be saying. When actually bad things happen to good people. And good things happen to bad people. And what's the mystery in that? And Ecclesiastes is full of that dichotomy. Solomon's still trying to work it out. We are powerless, but God is good and powerful. And when we submit to his powerfulness and accept our powerlessness, hope is restored in us in a strange way. We're just not dependent on working it all out. When Jesus' life was taken on the cross, it appeared that all hope was lost. Those who'd followed him in Jerusalem wept for him. His mother wept for him. His disciples wept for him. No doubt they asked similar questions to the grief that some of you are sharing today. What was our last meeting like? Could I have done anything different? Why did this have to happen? And then in Matthew 28, verse 9, Jesus rises from death and hope is restored. Greetings, he said. Do not be afraid. On the Emmaus Road, he consoled and walked alongside two friends who, like many of you, were lost in their grief. But then he revealed himself to them as a hope beyond life. In Jesus, God demonstrated his mastery over death. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus said of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. This new hope meant that all who put their hope in him would join him beyond this world of mourning in a new world of worship. All sin committed at the beginning, middle, or even at the very end of our lives would be forgiven and covered by his sacrificial blood. William Cooper, 1731 to 1800, my favorite Christian poet of all time, attempted to take his life several times. Read the great autobiographies of uh, John Newton, you'll know that's true. And Newton cradled him in his arms after several suicide attempts and helped to bring him back to life as a, a dear friend. After recovering from the last attempt, he penned, There is a fountain filled with blood. He says this, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. For since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wound supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Amen. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, in ourselves we are struggling. Struggling with our own emotional distress. Struggling with grief struggling with denial of our purple emotions 
struggling to be honest, struggling to be church, wrestling with hope. Tonight, Lord, we acknowledge our hopelessness, but your all-surpassing power. We recognize that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That you loved us and that you love us. You've made a way of life out of a way of blood. We pray tonight you might come by your Holy Spirit and restore hope within us. We give you thanks again for the memory of Julieta and Sarah. And we trust them to you, Father, in a world of worship. Whilst we remain here, we pray that we might open those lines of honest communication with one another. That we might be hope to one another as you are our hope. That we might gather round demonstrating your compassion. Flood this place with your mercy. Make us agents of hope in a hopeless and hurting world for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Will, thank you so much. Um, there's an awful lot there that I'm, I'm sure people will want to pick up on, but... Uh, this is now your opportunity to, um, to respond. And if people have particular questions, um, then now's the time to ask them of Will, and he will do his best. <laughs> so, here we go. Yes, thank you. Yeah, uh, just a question. I understand I'm not a medical person, but, so, you know, it's like depression can be an emotional thing, but there are also medical conditions like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia possibly clinical de depression d does the message that that the bible brings treat those any differently to you know maybe what you've been talking about and and if we encounter people who are struggling in this way should we treat them differently to what you've been saying okay. um so the bible doesn't offer any diagnosis of any disease of any kind other than leprosy leprosy is the only disease that the bible actually diagnoses and goes on to diagnose. So when we read the Bible, we often make assumptions relating to mental health contained within them. Um, obviously, we see suicidal ideation, as you've seen, within many of those strong people. What I'd say is that depression has many causes, but depression is depression. So there are many causes of depression. Uh, if you look at it from a clinical perspective, some depressions are more organically rooted, if you like, and some are more psychologically rooted. But when you really break those barriers down, there's, there's not a lot of distinction between them. Um, arguments around schizophrenia, for example, is a psychotic disorder, is more organically rooted. Bipolar 1 can be more organically rooted. Bipolar 2 is more psychologically rooted. The, the key point is the outworking of these things as, as an illness 
is not divided. I, don't think the Bible, I think the Bible is very integrated. And I think in our medicalized 21st century world, we can se- segregate out physical ailments and psychological ones and diminish the psychological ones as if you can just pull yourself out of it. And I think much of the stigma relating to mental health problems we see today uh, that people carry are the idea that, that if, it's a, if it's a psychological problem, you can will yourself away from it. And, and, and what I'd say is actually that's not the case. Um, when you take depression to its ontological conclusion, suicidal ideation is, is part of depression anyway. But when you take that depression on and on and on, moving into planning and then the execution of suicide itself are, are kind of part and parcel of that reality. Suicide is the greatest killer of, of men in this country, 27 uh, to 40. It's now become the greatest killer of young girls in this country too. It's epidemic proportion, proportions and, and terrifyingly so. But I think we, we have to always work against the narrative that says that psychological illness is, is a weakness or a willed orientation. So we, you know, we the Bible would tr- treats the illness as the illness. Jesus treats illness as illness. And um, I think we have to be very clear about treating illness as illness too. The complicating factor is, of course, you can have the measles. And you can then not have the measles. The difficulty with emotional health problems is we're on much more of a spectrum. So all of us will experience depression at some point in our lives. That depression is bereavement, which is depression with a p- clear locus. But um, we will all experience depression, but we will not all travel into the depths of the depression that some people will travel into. So that's why it's harder to explain in terms of the continuum. But for some people, getting to this place is very much part of the the disease. And I'm very cautious about people who say that depression is an opt-out of the pain. It's definitely not an opt-out of the pain. The things that drive people to that point aren't the pain... It's actually the disease itself that takes people to that place. So it's not an escape from the pain, if you like. It's just part of the disease. I, I'm happy to answer on any issue related to emotional mental health, by the way, not just relating to suicide. If it's anxiety, depression, self-harm, OCD, you name it. If you've got a question about a friend as well, they're very welcome. Hello. Yeah, w- well, kind of relating to what you just said about... Uh, continuum between uh, physiological and psychological what about the spiritual how does that connect or differ or is it different thank you um every time we do any work in the church relating to emotional and mental health problems people always firstly make, make assumptions around the spiritual realm and this is particularly true where psychotic illness is concerned Lots of people read the Bible, and they read stories like Legion, for example, uh, who was released from seven spirits, and they, they, they make an assumption in their mind that Legion was clearly schizophrenic, um, and actually that, that many of the people who came to Jesus who had spiritual problems were manifestations of, of the supernatural, but actually they would be diagnosed today with schizophrenia or, or some psychotic disorder. But I want to be really clear that the Bible is absolutely right. I believe the Bible is the, the, the true uh, word of God. Therefore, if it was that Jesus was releasing people from schizophrenia, it would say Jesus healed someone from schizophrenia like he healed them from blindness. You know, the Bible doesn't, doesn't make mistakes. If someone's healed from seven spirits, they're healed from seven spirits. He's not healed from schizophrenia. So, uh, I, you know, I appreciate those Christians who we... If we believe that the Bible is actually the true word of God, then let's read it for what it actually is and not make mental health assumptions about it. At the same time, 
what's it mean then? Can, you, can we correlate mental illness with demonic involvement? Well, Rob, for example, who is a consultant psychiatrist in a secure unit in Scotland, uh, deals with hundreds of people with schizophrenia. Secure units typically do that. Rob would argue that, that out of 100 patients who all claim to be either Jesus, Mohammed, or the devil, one of those might have a spiritual orientation. 99 of those wouldn't. So the statistics are quite similar to someone who's got diabetes or someone who's got, you know, cancer. 99 of those are biologically orientated, but one might be spiritually orientated. But when we make the assumption that every mental health problem is, has its orientation or its, its foundation in, in the spiritual, we, again, we, we make false assumptions about mental health itself and the organic origins of it, and we also stigmatize the sufferer, which is what's happened in churches through, throughout the centuries, is that, is that someone has psychotic disorder and everyone's busy trying to cast demons out of them because they've read the scriptures and they think that must be the problem, when actually issues around the brainstem and brain formation in schizophrenia are, are the origins of, of the disorder. The, the fact that the symptoms of the disorder can also be um, sort of the grandiosity and, and, and the spiritual motifs doesn't mean that they are actually spiritual. So I want to be really sort of clear about the distinction. In the fall, are, are all illnesses, ailments, and conditions aspects of the realm of Satan and the demonic? Yeah, I believe absolutely, since in heaven there won't be any of those things. But I really want to encourage you to just be very specific and clear about what it means to integrate the supernatural do we believe that the devil is particularly creating a blackness over someone who has poor serotonin within their neurotransmitters? Uh, or do we just want to acknowledge that actually they need some SSRI medication and they'll be absolutely fine? One of the things I find quite interesting is <clears throat> if it's demonic, it won't get better through therapy or through medication. Yeah? So, so some, sometimes people go to the doctor, they get the medication, they have the therapy and they feel great. So the de demons don't work like that. They don't suddenly go, oh, he's on medication now. I better leave. Uh, they, they don't say, oh, he's had therapy now. They're doing a lot better. I better go. If it's demonic, it's demonic. And I've seen demonic. And I can tell you it doesn't go away through medication or through therapy. So the important thing is to acknowledge, yes, it can happen. But, but the same is true with physical health conditions. You know, what's the cause? Is it, is it spiritual? Or is it actually biological? And on the grand meta-narrative, is it all not spiritual? Well, of course it's all spiritual, because illness wouldn't be around if there wasn't an enemy we had to work against. So th th those are the two things I have in mind. And I'm really passionate, as you can tell, about working against mental health stigma. Great. A another, another question. I hope, I hope it's an integrated answer. I'm not going to... It's a very good question. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thinking practically as a church, um, I'm actually thinking about my own personal experience, having encountered OCD and anxiety and depression. What's the best way of coming alongside someone like that? Because the people I've encountered, as you said, just saying, oh, it, it'll never happen, or come on, cheer up, that kind of doesn't solve depression, or oh, don't worry about it, doesn't solve, solve anxiety, or all this stuff that you're doing as part of your OCD, you don't need to do it. What's the best way of kind of addressing that from a very practical Great. point of view? Well, one of the practical things you've just done is make self-disclosure, which is really helpful. Um, what's your name? Charlie. 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 So, thank you, Charlie. I think, 
you know, this is really helpful when people make self-disclosure. I always, I, I could travel around the country talking about emotional health issues and always say, look, I have an anxiety disorder, which I do. Um, and sometimes people come up to you afterwards and they say, well, clearly you haven't got an anxiety disorder because you, you just spoke to a thousand people and I don't think you stuttered once. And I'm going, well, I've clearly got an anxiety disorder, but I'm good at working with my anxiety disorder. And I remember one conference I did, I did a women's conference, um, and a woman was very offended that I claimed to have a mental health problem because she said, you know, clearly God's healed you, and you're just not acknowledging your healing. Uh, and, you know, you're living in denial of the healing that you've received. Um, she was very upset about it. And I have to say, look, I'm really sorry, but I still feel like I've dropped my keys down the drain at least three times a day. That's not normal. Um, but you know, she, she found that very difficult. Um, when people make disclosure, it's really helpful because, because it normalizes people's experience. So I'm a priest, you know, I struggle with anxiety, and by making disclosure, people can go, okay, that's not how I imagined an anxiety disorder to work out, like being able to do what you do. And you've just disclosed anxiety and history of anxiety and depression, OCD, Charlie, which is really helpful because people who share similar traits, 12.5% of the population have OCD-style tendencies. So more than 10% of the room will acknowledge that actually their thinking has some links to obsessional outlooks, and that's quite painful. They'll also know that reassurance is the fuel of OCD, and therefore they'll know that reassuring Charlie that it's not going to happen is not actually the way to help him. Now, 10% will know how to respond, but the other 90% will need to be educated in how to respond. And that's why we've done things like put together the Mental Health Access Pack to actually share the information. Uh, we, we talk a lot about mental health first aid. And actually, I think in church, being mental health first aiders is something that we can, we can all become. If we know how to sort of tourniquet a wound or put plasters on or give someone paracetamol, equally good to know how to talk to someone who is depressed or anxious or obsessive. Uh, and also know how to respond when someone is, or acknowledge at least, when someone might be moving into the psychotic realm of life, which also happens uh, sometimes here in church, and particularly when we're working with people who, you know, who, who live in the centre of the city. It kind of goes with the territory. So the key point I'd make is learning and developing a passion is not about letting the kind of opening the lid on the box of frogs and suddenly it's all going everywhere and we're all getting a bit mental health and everyone's, everyone's getting kind of contaminated by these ideas and, and we're losing sight of the hope of spirituality. But actually that we've just become competent at talking about these issues and we begin to recognise that there's ways of talking that can be helpful and there are ways of talking that aren't helpful. Sometimes Christians say to me, but Will, Jesus heals today, right? So why, doesn't, why don't we just pray for healing for everyone who's got a mental health problem? And I always say, well, look, let's pray for people who've got a mental health problem, but let's also acknowledge that whereas there, there might be a physical healing that happens in an instant and it's done, with emotional health and mental health, there might be a healing in an instant, but it often takes a lifetime to work out what that looks like for someone to come to terms with the healing that this experienced. And I think sometimes, particularly I've noticed, depressed people, when they're prayed for in church, they feel like they're humoring people for the first six months and after that need to pretend that they've been healed so they don't disappoint everyone forever and a day. And they feel bad about going forward for prayer again? For depression again? You know? and, and actually, it's about us all saying, look, you're still depressed? That's fine. We're still going to pray for you. And we're not necessarily praying the, God, we want healing right now. We're, we're praying, God, we would like healing. And we want to pray for your Holy Spirit to come and bless this person. But acknowledge it's a journey that we're working with. 
and not sort of necessarily help. The language of the instant healing is not always helpful if it puts the burden of responsibility on the person who's got the illness. And that's often what prayer for mental health healing looks like in its worst form. You know, it's actually, right, we've prayed for you, now you need to snap out of it. So becoming educated, sharing our stories, and being ready for the long-haul work through, that's all really, really helpful. And that brings me just to another little point, which is that, is that people who have mental health problems aren't less useful to society or the church. They, they aren't less motivated than people who do other jobs and have other issues. Uh, and they, they, aren't, they aren't less reliable. Actually, what you find is I find some of the bravest and most compassionate and dedicated people have mental health problems. People like Mother Teresa, who has 20 years of chronic depression, or Florence Nightingale, who had a lifetime of bipolar disorder, or Winston Churchill, who had terrible psychotic depressions. Uh, all of those people, I think, are relatively useful. So I would encourage you to think about them as being useful too. Thank you, Will. I think probably time for one more question and then obviously questions over, yeah, over supper. Uh, Michael. Um, I was uh, struck by the message of hope that you offer for people, the families of people who have committed suicide. But I just wondered, can you say anything about how we could offer comfort to people who were perhaps non-Christians who had lost someone who's suicide, who wasn't what we would consider to be someone who was saved in the traditional terminology? Yes, I'm... Um, I did actually a moral service for um, a, a person who committed suicide whose family weren't, weren't Christians. And you know, my, my encouragement is to always point back to that same hope that we have received. I think as a clergy person, you experience exactly the same circumstances at the graveside of someone who's committed suicide as you do of someone who didn't know the Lord and died of natural causes. Because the hope that we receive is equally a hope for those who are in Christ. And um, that, that is a very difficult pastoral line to, to, to ride, if you like. But I think what we can do for folk who um, have lost someone to suicide is by at least diminishing all of our language of the language of stigma and shame and actually really pointing to the person rather than to their decision or to their faux decision, if you like. Because, again, people, who's, people who've lost loved ones through suicide experience a far poorer bereavement experience than those people who've died through natural causes. Um, and I think one of our responsibilities for the living is to ensure that they experience the best bereavement experiences they can experience. And so the, the stigma and shame that, is relating, that relates to suicide is just as prevalent in the world as it is in the church. And if we can love those people through that bereavement without being ashamed or afraid to talk about suicide, we bless them and offer them a different sort of hope. But I, I can promise you that all the funerals I've done, I'm sure it's true for Tim and for Charles, when you, when you preside at a funeral of someone who has made a decision not to choose Christ, it's a very different occasion to the occasion when you're presiding at the funeral of someone who loved the Lord with all their heart. Um, and there's a different out atmosphere and a different outlook. But I think everyone should be able to engage with the grief of loss without the shame and stigma that has been associated to, to suicide particularly. So that would be a way in which we can demonstrate hope, I think. Tim. Will, thank you so much for taking those questions and thank you for everything you've said and thank you for um, your encouragement to us.
um, as to how we might kind of move on. Um, really, really appreciate it. Uh, Will staying for supper, so if you've got burning questions, do please uh, grab him uh, later on.